Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Hey, everybody, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Guy Marzarati, in for Marisa Lagos. And today on The Breakdown, Malia Cohen. Her path in politics began with a third grade trip to San Francisco City Hall. Now, after a term on the State Board of Equalization, she's running for controller. What's that, you say? Well, the state controller is kind of often under the radar. It's a down ballot job, kind of a fiscal watchdog for California, paying all the state's bills, sitting on more than 70 boards and commissions, and generally, you know, just kind of keeping an eye on money coming in, going out of the state coffers. And Malia Cohen is going to join us to talk about her vision for that job. She is on the ballot in November. But first, Guy, some other news. Let's be honest, it's kind of a slow news period right now. That may change uh, with the House hearing later tonight. But um, one thing that did happen is the House uh, passed a marriage equality bill uh, aimed at doing a few things, repealing the Defense of Marriage Act and also basically codifying, putting into law the ruling from the Supreme Court that allows same-sex marriage. No surprise that it passed. It is a Democratic House. But what was a little surprising, 47 Republicans voted for it. Right. And a number here in California, I think we should say probably the most interesting vote, Ken Calvert, a House member from Riverside, a man who voted against the Defense of Marriage Act, who voted for Prop 22. Against the repeal of DOMA. For Prop 8. (laughs) And uh, now uh, basically votes for this bill in the House of Representatives this week, you know, putting forward that the federal government should recognize same-sex marriage. And we should say this is all about redistricting. All about redistricting. Palm Springs, which has a very big LGBT community, got added into his district. It's much more even now. It's very purple. Roughly equal numbers of Republicans and Democrats, a very big gay population. I also noticed, by the way, that he put out a press release on monkeypox, another issue of concern that we'll talk about in right. a minute. <clears throat> Excuse me. In a minute. But, yeah, no, it's uh, it, it's clear. And, the, and, the, and two other Republicans who are, you know, I would say somewhat uh, in the firing squad line, this— uh, year. They're in tough districts. David Valadeo in Central Valley, as well as Mike Garcia in Los Angeles. You know, they have tough races uh, uh, against Democrats. And uh, yeah, they voted uh, for that bill as well. Not a surprise. I guess the question is, will somebody, especially like Ken Calvert, who's been around, he's got a real, you know, history, as you said, you know, will that impress voters? Will maybe it'll turn off some voters? Right. I think it's for in many cases, just getting it out of the conversation. And I think big picture, no matter what happens to this bill in the Senate, I think Democrats see it as important to put these kind of wedge issues up for a vote, to try to create some differential in a lot of these House districts where they don't want to be talking about economics. You know, the the party, the economic policies that this this party hoped to enact uh, when they got control of the presidency, the House and the Senate in 2020, it hasn't happened. So now I think there's a real impetus to turn to these kind of social wedge issues like abortion, 
like the vote this week on gay marriage and and kind of create those contrasts. You look at a district like in Orange County, Michelle Steele, an incumbent who voted against this bill. You know, this could be an issue for her opponent, Jay Chen, to bring up in the course of the campaign. We'll hopefully have him on the show uh, in the coming weeks. But I think, again, the Democrats, they don't have much time until the election, but it's about keeping the focus on issues like this. Michelle Steele, if you go on her Twitter page, her press release page, she's not talking about this vote. She's talking about inflation, gas prices, AB5. It's not something that she wants to be a real focal point in the campaign. Yeah, and young Kim, just up the road, also an Orange County LA seat, uh, also voted against that bill. And, uh, yeah, we'll see. That could well become an issue in their race. Well, I mentioned monkeypox guy, and you know that has sort of uh, become top of mind in a lot of places. Uh, yesterday, uh, the Speaker of the Assembly, Anthony Rendon, had a press conference down in L.A., called on Javier Becerra, the former Attorney General here in California, now the Health Secretary, to declare a national emergency on monkeypox. We saw Nancy Pelosi do something similar. Ken Calvert did something similar. Um, what's going on? I mean, we, Becerra has been a really low-profile cabinet member, uh, especially given that we're in the, you know, in the midst of a pandemic, maybe two. Yeah. I mean, you've heard a lot of criticism of the federal response, even in places here in the Bay Area where we've seen some counties expand eligibility. There's still way more demand for vaccines than supply. I also think, Scott, this again exposes just the fragility of our local health systems. There, The demand you have for surveillance, for outreach, for vaccine supply, it always seems like those calls come And a lot of times when it's too late and you don't have that kind of steady investment to serve as a bulwark for these health systems. I heard one doctor uh, say on our KQED forum show this week, we need more peacetime funding for public health. And I think the kind of sad irony of that in some ways is that just up until a couple of weeks ago, it looked like there would be a measure on the November ballot to provide exactly that, to create a California Institute to detect pandemics, to provide kind of historic funding for local health agencies. That measure had a huge array of support, a huge coalition. It had a lot of financial backing uh, in Silicon Valley. It submitted the signatures it needed, and they just didn't get qualified in time. In time it'll it'll yeah. now be eligible for the 2024 20, which, ballot. Which may make it more likely to pass. We'll see. Or, I think it's, isn't it a, it's a tax on... It'll be tax over uh, personal income over million, $5, million, $5 million. But yeah. again, it's the question of if, if this conversation, if these issues are no longer in the headlines in 2024, will there be the same kind of urgency to enact that kind of funding? You know, we'll have to see. Yeah. And meanwhile, a lot of demand for the vaccine and not a lot of vaccines. All right. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to be joined by San Francisco Democrat Malia Cohen. She's running to be California's next state controller. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. 
And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here today with Guy Marzarati. And joining us today, someone who is hoping voters will hire her for a new job, the job of state controller to replace Betty Yee, who was termed out of that job. Malia Cohen served a couple terms on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. And for the past four years, she's been a member of the State Board of Equalization. Now she's the chair, we should say, and she's running for state controller. And she's facing off against Republican Lan Hee Chen in November. Malia Cohen, welcome to The Breakdown. Good to have you here in person. Thank you. It's good to see See you both. Well, you know, on this show, we like to get to know, we like have our audience get to know our guests a little bit before we talk policy and that sort of thing. So you were born and raised in San Francisco, I think 1977-ish. <laughs> way, to, <laughs> way to start. I know. I thought we were going to ease into this. Uh, ish. That might know. be correct. Hey, you're way younger than I am. Uh, <laughs> but uh, what do you remember about growing up in San Francisco? It was such a different place in the 80s and What a 90s. fantastic way to start. Thank you. Yes, I grew up here. My parents grew up here also. My grandparents came and they were about 17, 18, 19 years old when they came. So we've had a long perspective. What I remember is learning how to ride my bike down by the beach, learning how to roller skate in Golden Gate Park. You know, I think about the um, argument about JFK being open for cars or not for cars. It's an interesting version of the discussion, I think, that um, that that happened that allowed me to be myself and my sisters to be able to ride and skate freely and listen to music, going out and hanging out at the beach. I remember the zoo. I'm a public school kid, so we rode the bus all around the city till to this day. I can navigate the city via the bus line. Yeah. Oh, the 44 goes over here or take the 52 <laughs> here or the 43. And so that really has helped uh, really shaped who I am and how I have legislated and have led San Francisco um, for the last 13 years. 13 years. It's been an honor. And I know your grandfather was a union member. I think yeah. both of your parents. I think I read that your great aunt was a mayor. So kind of give us what's, give us the cliff notes of the Cohen family. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm impressed. All right. I'm bringing a game today, guys. You clearly have done your d- d- diligence. Um, so my, my mom and my father, they grew up here in San Francisco. And my grandparents, my maternal grandparents are from New Orleans, Louisiana. And my paternal grandparents are from the Houston, Galveston, Lamarck, Texas. So my experience experience here comes from the African-American out-migration from the South, moving into San Francisco, looking for work. We are no different than that. Uh, I went to Lowell High School and happy to have conversations about my thoughts around Lowell High School and that <laughs> we'll policy. <ask> and <laughs> and uh, my dad went to Washington. My mother went to Lincoln High School. I'm the eldest of, um, of five daughters. All wow. of us went to public school, um, primarily on the west side of the city. We grew up in the southeast part of the city, that part of the neighborhoods that I ultimately 
represented on the uh, San Francisco Board of Supervisors. So we have read that one of your first exposures to politics was in third grade. Oh, yes. And you took a, a trip, a class trip, to City Hall. And I think you met, perhaps, with Diane Feinstein, who was mayor at the time. Tell us about that and what impact it had. Yeah, that was a really impactful field trip. Now, you remember when you were eight years old how excited you were to go on any kind of a field trip, right? Just to get out of the classroom. So I went to Lakeshore Elementary School, and in the third grade, my teacher was Miss Nicolosi, Raffaella Nicolosi. And she had had she had an cre- incredible impact on my life. She introduced me to the arts, to the opera, to the symphony, as well as dramatic um, uh, visual arts. And these were field trips that we would take for these type, this level of exposure. One field trip in particular was of San Francisco City Hall, and I remember being dumbfounded. I mean, just knocked speechless when I walked into the building. And this is before Willie uh, Willie Brown did the renovations and they added the finer accoutrements to the... uh, The gold uh, leaf on the dome. To the the, the City Hall. But when I walked in as an eight-year-old self, I remember just being mesmerized by the staircase and um, the marble and the intricacies of the designs uh, in the walls. And it was just a beautiful, fantastic place. And I just wanted to work there. I didn't know what work transpired there, but I just thought it would be a gift to be able to walk up and down those staircases every single day. And I just wanted wanted to be in that space. So we're doing a tour of City Hall. They're giving you the history. They're telling you about what this means and what what happened over here. You know, if, if you've done it before, you know that um, there are vaults around City Hall and you got to see um, relics of the past. And it was a, I believe it was a, a in my, my memory, my recollection is that it was a uh, chance crossing. Uh, Feinstein was coming out of her office and we just happened to be up on the second floor crossing paths. And she spoke to the class about the importance of public service. And she said, um, do any of you want to be in elected office? And I remember no one raised their hands. And she said, well, I'm the first mayor of San Francisco and um, I worked really hard to be here. Maybe someone in this class would like to be uh, and serve in public service. She talked about the how it was a beautiful job. It was one of her favorite jobs. It was a selfless job and I'm my mind is is my mind is blown at this point I'm just like yes sign me up this is where I want to be so honestly from age eight until where I am now I um I've been working to get to 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 this place of service it is in me and I do credit that those seeds of of, of selflessness and, and 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 desire to serve started with Miss Nicolosi's class and also ended with that conversation with then Mayor Diane Feinstein. It's so funny because we hear from elected officials all the time who say, Oh, I never thought about running. I this is the last thing. Someone <laughs> encouraged me or someone pushed me into it. For you it really does sound like this was something you've thought about for such a long time. Did has that added pressure? I mean how has that influenced how you've pursued this path? It has confirmed that I'm on the pathway and that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. There was a period where I was Gavin Newsom's confidential assistant. Now, this is in 2004 when he's the mayor. It's his first year. And I sat right outside his door. And I remember he was going to go speak to some elementary school students. And I just shared with him a little bit of my story and what uh, Mayor Feinstein did for me and how I am here because of her words. And I remember he had this look like, uh, no pressure. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, Mayor, I just want you to know that you're going to go in there and you're going to be speaking to the future. 
to the future of San Francisco, to the future of the state of California. And I said, don't, no pressure, but don't take the, your words lightly. It's incredibly important that you're planting seeds of hope and, uh, and a vision and speaking favor over these young people. And um, so that was my small way of paying it back a little bit forward before I was in elected office. So you went to Lowell High School in yes. San Francisco, which is an elite high school. It's been in the news recently with the school board, and what we can talk about that in a minute. But I'm curious, you know, about your experience as a young black woman, mm-hmm. young a girl, a teenager mm-hmm. uh, at that school. Uh, you became class president, uh, right? Right? Yes, yeah. so, I did. All right, so you did pretty well, obviously. Uh, but, you know, what was it like? It was. It, did it feel comfortable when you first walked through those doors? Yeah, it felt comfortable for me. And this doesn't take away from some of the other stories and narratives that you heard. Some that do come from folks that matriculated at the same time that I was there in high school. But my experience from Lowell did prepare me for the real world. If you think about it, there were certain sects, right? You had the kids that were in ROTC. You had those that were in the audio and visual club. You had people that used to smoke up and drink up on on their off mods. You had people who cut class. You had all these different kinds of people, the LGBTQ community, the Filipinos, the African-Americans, Latinos, like you name it. It was all there. And it was a microcosm of San Francisco. And I firmly believe running for student body president did prepare me to be able to talk to people um, that has brought me to where I am today, to be able to bridge the gap, understand where our commonalities are and find areas where we can work together. And not to mention, it absolutely did prepare me academically. I went on to uh, attend Fisk University, one of the nation's oldest uh, historically black colleges and university. It's in Nashville, Tennessee. And then I earned a master's degree from Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So how did that experience at Lowell, I guess, inform how how you view the debate that's going on to today about merit admissions. It was, you know, activism on the part of a lot of members of the Black Student Union who were pushing for changes, maybe shifting to a lottery system. That's, you know, legal debates, political debates ongoing. But how did that affect how you view that issue? Absolutely. I uh, viewed it, I mean, it was very personal because not only did I graduate from there, but I have three sisters that also graduated from there. And I had church members that graduated from there. And I have, so there was, there was a community of folks that, I, that of whom I'm still in touch with that also graduated. We had similar experiences and the world is rough and sometimes it can be unfriendly and you do need to learn how to advocate for yourself and stand up for yourself. And you are going to get shot down and it is incumbent upon you to find that strength and that wherewithal to stand back up. And so, for example, uh, I tried out for girls drill team three times and never made it. I ran for student body president and but and won. And <laughs> despite people telling me, you're black. You're, they're not going to vote for you. They're they being the proverbial they. All those other folks. But being able to be able to connect with people and hear them, and then ha- be able to represent, I think, really did prepare me for where I am today. I do believe that San Francisco deserves to have an academic high school, just like we deserve to have a science and technology magnet program, just like we deserve to have a school that focuses on the arts. There is a rich diversity here in the San Francisco Unified School District. And and it is incumbent upon us to find the right balance. Now, that's not to say that people that criticize the um, emissions process into Lowell didn't have merit in what they were saying. I do. When I was at Lowell, uh, I finished in 1996, and uh, it was about 3 or 4% African-American. 
maybe six or seven percent Latino. So the numbers that you see today still mirrored what happened over 20, um, almost 30 years ago. <laughs> and uh, and it hasn't changed. We do need to begin to pay attention to African-American men, making sure that they can read by the time they're in the third grade so that we are not feeling that uh, pipeline to prison that we often talk about and that we are concentrating our efforts and our energy um, early in life um, and um, remembering that these young students are parts of systems, uh, of family systems are part of a community. Communities are part of the city. And so you're not able to just isolate and just pick the student up, put them in a classroom for a couple hours and then put them back in their in their um, in their respective neighborhoods. Um, so there is a lot of merit to the complexity to the issues that, that were brought up. But I firmly do believe that we should have an academic high school that is based on merit. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Guy Marzarati. We're talking with Malia Cohen. She's a candidate for state controller. And we should say that Guy and I talked to Cohen's opponent, Lani Chen, back in March. And you can find that interview wherever you get your podcast. Malia, we could just keep talking about your, you know, your youth. And you, know, there's, you have so many interesting things. Uh, you were got, But we're going to fast forward a little bit because you're running for a big job. Uh, but you get elected to the Board of Soups mm-hmm. 2010. Yep. That was a crazy election. It was like 20 rounds of ranked choice voting. 18. You, oh, 18. Okay. Uh, I got it. 18, correct. 19, 18, or maybe 18 or 19 rounds. I don't think it was quite 20, but there were 22 other candidates in the race. Yeah. An so, open seat. And so you win. You get reelected pretty easily, I think, in, uh, in 2014. Now you're on the board of equalization. Give us the elevator pitch of what that job is and why it prepares you to be controlled. Sure. Is so everything equal? We're going up a lot of stories. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you see, you got Board of Supervisors, 10. A re-election in 2014, the Board of Equalization in 2018, as I was terming out. And that seat, uh, I was running to replace Fiona Ma, another San Franciscan, another woman that served on the Board of Supervisors, but then went on sub- subsequently to serve on the, in the Assembly. The Board of Equalization, in quite a simple term, is uh, the, your friendly neighborhood property tax board. It is a independently uh, elected body. And our sole responsibility is to manage the property tax system. The property tax system for the state of California is a multi-billion dollar uh, entity. And as you can imagine, um, property tax law is pretty complex. So yes, for the last three and a half years, I have been boning up on property tax law and have done a very good job. Now, one thing that I want to note is that the fifth seat that sits on the State Board of Equalization is actually the controller seat. So there is a there is a functionality, there's an overlap here. Oftentimes people want to talk about being a watchdog for the state, for state tax dollars. And yes, that's a high level thing. If we're going to have a conversation, let's get into the granular level and talk about their absolute functions about what the controller is actually doing. On the Board of Equalization, I represent 10 million people. One-fourth of the state of California, I represent 23 counties. So from Del Norte County, which is just south of the Oregon border, all the way down to Santa Barbara. And I think as of December of uh, last year, I now represent parts of Ventura County. So as you can see, it's a huge swath of the state of California, and we deal with uh, property taxes, and we opine on and help give clarity to issues uh, that assessors, which are duly elected by their respective county 
county uh, and constituents and um, g- help bring clarity on, on, on what the state statute says on, on property law. So you mentioned the watchdog nature function of the controller's office also deals with the disbursement uh, of state money. What do you hope to bring to that job? Yeah, I hope to bring um, uh, a sense of equity on the disbursement of the tax dollars. When you talk to people, they don't know about what the controller is doing. And I think that that's disheartening because the controller, by far, I think, is one of the most powerful positions in the state of California. And I'd say second maybe to the governor. The governor has the ability to allocate dollars. The controller has the ability to audit each and every one of those tax dollars, whether it's the government governor spending or whether it's the legislature spending. So any tax dollar. And I don't know if you two have gone through an audit yourself. You know that it's pretty. It's a very cumbersome process and it's very detailed-oriented. And it will tell everything, where dollars are spent and where they're not spent. Are we doing a good job? Where are we spending this money? So what I'd like to bring to this conversation is paying a very careful attention to, are we equitably distributing where those tax dollars are going? We hear every day. What does that mean? We hear every day about how budgets are statements of our priorities, right? When you look at the state budget, you guys go over it on a year, yearly basis from the May revise all the way to, to the end of July. And... Um, and you, you have to wonder, are we spending money wisely? So the governor has spent a lot of money on homelessness, but we still see homelessness on every in every corner of the state of California. Are we spending in a wise way? I don't know, but I do know that the controller is in a position to audit and to tell you when, where, and if, and what programs specifically are meeting its mark. Well, you know, California, it's, well, first of all, it's been, I think, 1967, or 60, uh, I think it was 67, was the year that the last Republican got elected controller in the state of California, Houston Flournoy. And Sacramento is run by Democrats. You're a Democrat. Couldn't you make the argument, as Lonnie Chen is, that the fiscal watchdog, you know, ought to be maybe somebody from a different party to kind of keep their feet to the fire, somebody who can really, you know, not worry about alienating or making angry their allies? That's an interesting argument, and I certainly one that would benefit him. Here's another argument to consider. Shouldn't someone have some experience in working in state government before they're running for such a senior senior level position. Another argument is um, um, I think that Mr. Chen is no different than the Republican who's come before him. And um, it's clear that the national Republicans in Washington, D.C. are paying attention and have high hopes on this race. And I do not believe that he will uh, be successful. I think he's out of step with the direction that California is going in, whether we're talking reproductive rights, whether we're talking on homeless spending, whether we're talking um, on, on, on retirements, when you think about CalPERS and CalSTRS specifically. So I don't think that that is the right um, um, the right direction. And I believe that that fierce watchdog nature is in, in, in probably most uh, electeds. And I think it's a, a convenient assumption that he assumes that because I'm a part of the Democratic Party that I cannot uh, be a watchdog. But those you guys have watched my work here in San Francisco. You know I've gone against the grain on numerous occasions and have won, have taken on big tobacco, have taken on the, the sugary beverage industry, have taken unpopular positions and still um, been able to hold my own. You mentioned reproductive rights as an issue that you've sought to draw a contrast between yourself mm-hmm. uh, and Lonnie Chen. He said, quote, he has neither the power or interest to change current California laws regarding abortion. 
Shouldn't that close the door on that conversation? Absolutely not, because let's be clear, Lonnie Chin has spent his entire career advancing the white ring, the right-wing agenda that's got us to this point where we are today. He supported Mitt Romney, who supported the um, uh, Supreme Court candidates that are now Supreme Court justices that ushered in the, um, the fall of Roe v. Wade. So, uh, no, I think that's a fake argument. But flipping it around, you know, if he, you know, you're saying, well, he could try to restrict spending on abortion, like what will you do as controllers to to increase funding? I mean, if that's what you would want to do. I I don't have the ability to increase funding. What I have the ability is to make sure that it's going in where it's supposed to be going and that that it's um, I would have the ability to not be an obstacle um, to in restricting the flow of tax dollars to the respected places where they're supposed to go, public health clinics uh, in particular that come to my mind. So day one, where do the areas, the programs maybe that you think are ripe for audits or maybe a deeper look on how the state is spending money? Yeah, you know, I'm, I I think that um, the legislature has done a pretty good job in understanding a little bit where EDD, the uh, Employment Development Department, how it imploded during the, um, during the pandemic. You might recall many articles being written about how uh, people were applying for for aid and uh, getting approved, and people who were already on the rolls were getting kicked off. So I would like to better understand that. Um, the legislature has been able to claw back about a billion dollars, $1.1 billion um, of state dollars that were fraudulently uh, taken from the state. The other thing is, is technology. I think technology is important. Uh, working on the Board of Equalization, it's incredibly difficult to get even um, budget statements because that fiscal system, whom I believe you guys have reported on as well, is um is, is not working where it's supposed to be working. I mean, and, and it's been this goes back. To, the MOU was signed during John Chung's days when he was state controller. But you know, there is a, somebody whose job it is to be the state auditor. Uh, yes. and I think it was in 2010 she warned the legislature and the governor about problems at the EDD with technology and other things. And you know, fast forward to the pandemic, the whole thing crashed yeah. and burned. So. Why do you think it's so hard? I mean, we have audits coming out all the time. Uh, Why do you think you, uh, if you're the controller, can really hold their feet to the fire in a way that no one's been able to? I think that's that's a good question. And one of the things that I, the way I describe it is, is breathing life into an audit. An audit really is just a report saying where the dollars are going and, and a series of recommendations. And oftentimes those recommendations just rest on the shelf. They never get implemented. What makes me unique is that I have that background as a legislature to begin to look at these representations. Uh, recommendations and work with the legislative body to begin to implement them, whether it's on the ground organizing, um, whether it's connecting with labor, our labor partners, or um, bringing a measure to to voters itself. I've done all of that. And uh, Mr. Chen can say that he has done none of that. We have about 30 seconds left in one of your recent campaign ads. You had a (laughs) co-star. It was your daughter. I'm curious, you know, how is being a parent affected the work that you do every day? You know, it has allowed me to um, to be more thoughtful about my approach and how I spend and where I spend my time. Um, as a matter of fact, just coming here, I was uh, with my daughter. She's not feeling well today, and so trying to nurse her back to health. Um, but being intentional about where I spend my time and my energy, making sure that this world is clean, that climate change is real, and that we continue to move forward so that there is an earth that is sustainable for the future generations. All thank right. You. We're going to leave it right there. Malia Cohen, thank you so much for Thanks coming for in. for joining us. Thank you. That'll do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. I'm Guy Marzarati. You can follow me on 
on Twitter at Guy Marzarati. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter as well. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time, everybody. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.